0: Thanks, Trish. That was a very kind introduction. And um, hasn't this been great so far? Um, I've already enjoyed myself so much. And um, I'm going to kind of turn the tables real quick before I jump in. And, um, you know, I just know at retreats like these, often the person who is responsible for everything and organizing everything will at some point thank the people who pitched in. And I know a ton of people have um, pitched in to make this retreat happen. Uh, however, we don't always get to thank the person who organized everything and is responsible for the whole thing because they don't usually schedule a thank myself slot. <laughs> so I did want to just take a minute to thank Trish, and Rob gave me permission, Trish, to do this. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I feel like I'm going to echo back some of the things she just said about me, but um, I think a lot of you know this, but Trish, she does provide leadership for all of the women's ministry that happens in our church. It's under Rob, but Trish um, does provide leadership for all of that. And she somehow continued to do all of that while also planning this retreat. And something like this just requires a ton of thought, a ton of time, thinking through every detail. And Trish has done that without dropping her other responsibilities. And what I know to be true about Trish is she does it because she loves you all. Um, you know, she's thinking about different groups of women, and how is this going to land on them, and I know that because she emails me about that, she texts me about that, and she just thinks through how will this affect the women in the church, and it's because she loves you, and she cares about you, and she wants every single one of you to be served by this time together, and it represents just hours of her time. Uh, Trish leads with clarity, with meekness, with confidence in God, and with humility. And our whole church benefits from her. So let's just thank Trish for her service in this retreat. Thank you. All right. um, I have loved this theme on friendship. You know, it's one that obviously it applies to every one of us every season of life. And so, you know, I was thinking about this theme of friendship, and... um, I thought I would wear a T-shirt in honor of this. So, I thought maybe some of you are coming here and you wonder, what does Megan Mellinger bring to the table in friendship? What does she have to offer? Maybe that's not really a question you asked. But I thought I would answer it anyway. So, uh, without further ado, good to see my T-shirt. I'll have to move out from the podium so everyone can see it. But, here it is. Can everyone see it? It says, I came, I saw... I made it awkward. So, if any of you are wondering what it's like to be friends with Megan Mellinger, this is at least part of it, and lest any of you are wondering if that's true, which would probably only be if you never actually met me, that you're wondering that, but um, Jared is the one who got me this t-shirt, so you know it's true. (laughs) Um, And my friends can testify to it, so a little shout out to my friends who put up with my awkwardness. Um... But seriously, I feel like this topic, we all can bring our insecurities to it, but it's, it's something that we all need to think about because it's a part of all of our lives. And Trish did a wonderful job of just laying out the foundation of friendship and then hearing all the practical put-ons that Gina gave us of how to nurture friendship has been great. And um, my assignment, our time this morning, is going to be spent considering uh, what do we do when friendship gets hard? How do we think rightly about that? what do we need to be on guard against? How can we honor God in the midst of challenges in our friendships? Um, and as I do that, I look out at this group of women and know that this is a group of women who really value community, who walk through challenges well, who model persevering in friendship. So I'm, I'm really thankful to just be speaking to a group of women that really embodies this in many ways. Um, so in the Bible, you know, from many passages, we see that the Bible assumes that friendships do get messy. At times, they require work and can just be hard. And if we think about it, our own experience really teaches us that, too. Consider these questions. Have you ever felt misunderstood or realized maybe that you misread someone and then you needed to to take some time to work through that misunderstanding. Have you ever felt hurt by something someone said or did? Maybe they shared a critique of you a little too directly, or maybe they made an insensitive comment about something that you hold near and dear to your heart. Maybe you've been hurt by something a friend didn't do. Maybe they ignored a trial that you were going through or weren't there to celebrate an important milestone with you? Has a friend ever disappointed you or let you down? Or have you ever felt like your own commitment and love has been called into question? Or maybe you've had this experience, feeling like you're just sailing along in a friendship and everything's going really well, only to learn that the other person is holding on to an offense and has felt disappointed by you. I think all these questions, we can relate to one or the other, and just points out that friendship comes with challenges. And sometimes these challenges are minor things, right? A misunderstanding that gets quickly worked out. Other times, it can be big, hard things, like feeling betrayed in some way. And at the beginning, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge that, um, that sometimes friendships come to an end. They move maybe from friendship category into acquaintance category, and that's okay. So we're going to be spending the majority of our time talking about when friendship gets hard and leaning into that. Um, But I just wanted to take a minute to acknowledge that sometimes friendships come to an end, and that does not always mean that you did something wrong or didn't persevere the way you should have. Sometimes it's something as simple as a change in season of life, right? Sometimes we have uh, a friend that we go to the park because our kids play together. And then next thing we know, those kids are in school and it's just not a natural connection point anymore. Or maybe the friend who was five minutes down the road is now 25 minutes down the road and that's just enough to kind of shift that friendship. At other times, it can be that we have been sinned against in ways that really just fundamentally affect the course of that relationship. And we're always called to love, right? That's not an option But that doesn't always mean that we have to continue in trusted friendship with someone. So someone can break our trust in such a way that we no longer can walk with them in close friendship. There's also the category of unreconciled friendships. Maybe you've sought forgiveness from someone. You've tried to live at peace as far as it depends on you, but the other person has really just been unwilling to forgive you. So those are real categories. Um, I think those are the occasional things. They're the exceptions. They're not the norm. Uh, But I just wanted to say that up front, that it's not that we're always called to persevere when friendship gets hard or that if a friendship has moved on, that it's because you did something wrong. Um, Ordinarily, in most friendships, most of the time, we are called to press in and persevere. Um, as we consider how messy friendships can get and how much work they require, I think it's really important that we keep the big picture in view, because without that big picture, uh, you know, it'll just be easy to kind of throw in the towel and move on. Uh, it'll be easier to just move on to a new relationship that feels easier in that moment rather than continuing to persevere in that friendship. And so, um... I want us to consider, what does God want to accomplish for us? What's the big picture? Well, one thing he absolutely wants to do is refine us, right? That's something he always wants to accomplish in us, is refine us. Um, I think our default can be, at least my default can be, like, what's easiest for me? What's best for me? What serves me? Rather than asking, what does God want to do in me and through me? And that's really the question we want to keep in mind, and part of what God is doing in us is rooting out sin, right? He wants to root out selfishness and pride in us, and he wants to make us more like Jesus. So if we want to become more like Jesus, one of the best action steps we can take is to lean in when our friendships get hard. The other thing God wants us to do so he wants to refine us, but he also wants to increase our joy. He wants us to benefit from the gift that friendship is. God wants us to stick it out with friends because he wants to add to our joy. I know Trish mentioned this quote. It's such a great one. It's J.C. Ryle and speaking about friendship. He calls it the relationship that halves our sorrows and doubles our joys, right? And we know that, that If we're enjoying an experience or having fun doing something, that joy is multiplied and increased when we have friends that we're able to share it with. So God, he has a good purpose for us in pressing through challenging times in our friendships. And often our most fulfilling friendships are the ones where we've weathered some hard times. So I just want us to keep that big picture in view as we look at um, leaning in when friendship gets hard. Uh, We're going to jump into our text in Romans 12. I'm covering verses 14 to 21, and I'm just going to pray, and then we'll jump in there. Lord, thank you for each woman here. And thank you for how you have already been meeting us during this retreat. I just pray that that would continue. Holy Spirit, would you help me as I speak out of weakness? And would you help each woman here? Lord, show them what you have from them for them out of this passage. Please be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Romans 12, 14 to 21. I'll be reading all those verses. We'll really be looking at um, verses 14 to 18, though. So it says... Right, and as we think about this topic of friendships and when they become challenging, and as we consider what this text has to say, I really feel like there were three, three questions that we can ask ourselves coming out of this. Um, so that will be what we do. We'll move through these three questions. I'll list them out and then we'll go through them a little more slowly, one at a time. So, in friendships that feel hard, am I walking in empathy? Am I walking in humility? And am I walking in forgiveness? Okay, so those are the questions we're going to look at one at a time here. So our first one. In friendships that are hard, am I walking with empathy? And if we look at verse 15, it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And this text is just a very clear call to empathy and compassion. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice. It's a calling to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, to rejoice over what they are happy about, over ways God has blessed them and is at work in their lives. It's celebrating that job promotion our friend got. It's celebrating when our friend is pregnant again or expecting another grandbaby. It's rejoicing to see our friend's teenager get baptized. It's getting excited with our friend about that amazing trip she gets to go on. In short... It's relating to their joys like they're our very own joys. And when we look at this call to empathy and to rejoice with our friends, it doesn't take long to see that a great enemy to this is envy. In our flesh, we're just going to find it a lot easier to envy our friends than to rejoice with them. And there are a couple definitions of envy that help us to just see it for what it is, the ugliness of this. Um, The first one comes from F.F. Bruce. It says, envy is the grudging spirit that cannot bear to contemplate someone else's prosperity. It's a grudging spirit. Or this one from another theologian. Envy is a feeling of unhappiness at the blessing and fortune of others. And as you hear those definitions of envy, it's really the exact opposite of what our text is calling us to do, to rejoice with those who rejoice. Envy is begrudging that blessing, God's blessing, in their lives. And the thing about envy is that it can start out seeming like a really small thing and almost something we might not even notice. But left unchecked, it can really grow and begin to poison our friendships. It's kind of like a tiny pebble that gets stuck in your shoe, or even like a few grains of sand. You kind of don't notice it at first. It's no big deal. It's just a little irritant. But the more you walk, the more it starts to bother you. And if you don't actually take the minute to take your shoe off and pull that pebble out, by the end, you have a big, ugly blister on your foot. That's what envy is like. It starts out with just this little twinge of envy. Doesn't seem like a big deal but if you let it sit there and you let it grow it actually turns into a begrudging spirit toward your friend and God's blessing in their life and and we can find ourselves no longer really able to even enjoy that friendship if we've let envy grow there so if you find yourself thinking about a friendship in your life that has felt difficult to you and maybe you can't quite pinpoint what the reason is it's just like This feels hard, and I'm struggling in some way. I don't know why. Um, It may be worth asking yourself if you've allowed envy to creep in in some way. might not necessarily be the case, but I think because it can come in subtly and kind of grow there and start to poison the water, we may not realize it. So you can just ask yourself, are you rejoicing with your friend, or have you let envy crowd out that kind of empathy that rejoices with those who rejoice? You know, if you're a teenager, maybe you're tempted to envy your friend's appearance or how easily she always seems to make friends or the fun trips she gets to go on. Us moms and married women, we can envy our friend's well-behaved kids or what appears to be the perfect blissful marriage. We can envy the money our friend has to decorate her home where we feel like we're always on such a tight budget there. Uh, We can envy the relationships our uh, friends have with their grown children or that they have all their grandchildren close, but yours are scattered across the country. for women in the workplace, uh, we can face temptations to envy someone else's success or just their recognition in their career, or maybe they have a flexibility they enjoy in their job, but you don't. You know for all of us, we all face temptations to envy, whether it's appearance or talents or social status, or just our friends' gifting. Whatever form envy may take, whether it's something big or just something trivial, we need to confess that to the Lord and ask Him to help us truly rejoice with our friends over the blessings they enjoy in life. Let's rejoice with those who rejoice. The other part of our verse talks about weeping with those who weep. And I know Gina touched on this too. It's walking with people through trial. And, you know, friendship can get hard when someone's walking through either a significant or just an ongoing trial. You know, I think rejoicing with those who rejoice, that can tempt us in some ways. It can tempt us toward envy. Walking with someone through trial, it doesn't tempt us in the same way, and yet there are challenges we can face. We can be tempted to withdraw because maybe we just aren't quite sure what the person needs. We don't know what to say, and so we just kind of back off a little bit. We don't want to be in an uncomfortable place. Or maybe we just kind of grow weary in doing good. It's ongoing, and they're kind of stuck there, and you've been serving and looking to bless them, and it's just it kind of keeps going, and we grow weary in it. Or sometimes we can just lack that sympathy and compassion that is able to put ourselves in their shoes and really enter into that hardship with them. So... We want to be able to to weep with those who weep. And part of that is that we do need to recognize that um, those walking through trial, they may not have much to give on any level. You know, their time, their emotions, their serving, their energy, all of that is going to be tapped. But trials are a time where we get to come alongside of our friends, we get to lighten their loads. Without expecting others in return. And I'm tearing up because I've been the recipient of that. You know, uh, most of you in this room know a couple of years ago we walked through the trial of our two and a half year old at the time being diagnosed with leukemia and just walking through childhood cancer. And it was the hardest time of our lives. I, I certainly felt like I had nothing to give. I was the most exhausted I had ever been, caring for a sick daughter plus our other five children. Add to that, just I was exhausted emotionally, and I had just a general brain fog at that time. So I just wasn't really a fun hang during that period. But I am so grateful for my friends who kept showing up and checking in. Often it was just a text with a scripture letting me know they were praying for me. Sometimes it was showing up with chocolate or meals or groceries. I'm so thankful that I had friends who were weeping with me. Sometimes it was just listening to me lament and giving me space to do that. I also have been the one who has not done this well. I had a friend who walked through a severe trial and afterwards. She shared with me ways that she felt like I hadn't been a good friend to her. And that was hard to hear, but I had to own some of what she said. Um, I wasn't there for her in some ways that I really should have been, and I had to ask her forgiveness. And so this isn't something that I've learned to do, but I want to do it better next time. I want to do a better job of weeping with those who weep. And I know you all want that too. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions comes to ruin but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Let's be women who stick close to one another through trial. Our second question we can ask when friendships get hard is am I walking in humility? Verse 16 says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. All right, so here it's a very clear call for us to put away our pride and to walk in humility. All right? It's very clear. Do not be haughty. <laughs> we're not to be haughty, we're not to be wise in our own eyes, we're to put on humility. In other words, do not follow the example of Elizabeth Bennett from Pride and Prejudice, who was so quick to judge Mr. Darcy. You know, uh at, Her her initial judgments of him were that he was haughty and aloof and selfish. And then later, as she actually got to know him, as the story goes on, she sees him completely differently and falls in love with him. All right, so we're not going to follow Elizabeth Bennett and be quick to judge and trust our own perspective all the time. If we want to walk in humility and not become haughty, we need to become more aware of our own sin and weakness than the other person's. Uh, Tim Lane and Paul Tripp have this helpful book rela- called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. And in it, they say Godly relationships flourish best between two humble people who acknowledge their weaknesses and sins and their need for grace. The self righteous person who denies his own need will not be a channel of grace to others. Right? And I know that's what we all want, right? We all want to be channels of grace to others. Well, we can't do that if we're self-righteous. We can't do that if we're aware of everyone else's sin and weakness, but not our own. When we're aware of others' weakness and sin, but not our own, it's easy to fall into self-righteous judgments that will just begin to color how we see others. Right, so some little examples that maybe you can relate to. We can think things like, I'm always the one initiating get-togethers. So she must not value our friendship as much as I do. Or if she really cared about me, she would have shown up for fill in the blank. Or, man, she's always talking about her family because she must think they're a lot better than mine. Or she purposely pretended like she didn't see me at that last cross-culture meeting. And all these examples, we're taking something that we might see and experience, but then we're attaching a motive to it. But if we're walking in humility, we can acknowledge that we're not omniscient, we're not all-knowing like God is, we can't know what another person is thinking or what their motives are. We can also put on humility by valuing the perspective of others and admitting that our own perspective may be off. Um, Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. And part of what that means is that we need to value their perspective. And we need to be open to the fact that sometimes we have just misread someone or a situation or a person. And when I was thinking about this, I think this is especially true in friendships where we're really different from one another and maybe have really different communication styles, Um, And so we need to be careful not to make judgments of our friends just because they are different than we are. I was thinking about just, I feel like I have varied friends and... They all they communicate differently, and you know I have a friend who just she generally uses like much stronger language than I do. It's more colorful, it's more creative. But when she's describing something, whether positive or negative, her language will be a lot stronger. Well, It could be easy for me to import a, a judgment there and think that that's indicative of her feeling super strongly about it. When that's not necessarily the case, she's just a different type of communicator than I am. Or another friend who can just be more black and white in her communication. I've realized I can be tempted to assume that she's assigning morality to things when she actually isn't, that she's saying this is right and this is wrong when she actually isn't. Um, And for myself, I've learned over the years that I can be someone who is really direct at times, and I didn't know this about myself for a while. Um, And so that can sometimes come across as being like a little harsh or abrasive. That's not what I'm intending to do, but I can just be a direct communicator. So we just want to leave room for different personality types, different communication styles, without attaching judgments to those things. The other thing we can do uh, in putting on humility in our friendships is to seek friendships outside of our own tribe, right? Uh, Our verse talks about associating with the lowly. Now, I'm not saying anyone outside of your tribe is lowly, but that's getting at the idea of not associating with people Um, or associating with people we wouldn't normally think to associate with. And, you know, we can have all kinds of different tribes that friendships form around. We can have theological tribes. We can have political tribes. We can have season-of-life tribes, common-interest tribes, even just the we've-been-in-this-friend-group-forever tribes. right? And none of these things are wrong. It's natural for friendships to develop around these things But we can ask ourselves, how often am I willing to look past my current tribe and invite others in? So let's put off haughtiness and pride in our friendships and how we think about others and seek to clothe ourselves in humility. In friendships that are hard, we can also ask ourselves, am I walking in forgiveness? So this is our third question. Friendships that are hard, am I walking in forgiveness? From our text, Romans twelve seventeen to 18 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. First Peter 3, 9 says, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. And one thing we can be certain about in our friendships is that we will sin and we will be sinned against, right? That's a guarantee. And uh, let me tell you that this truth was evident in my own life at a very young age. So growing up, uh, when I was like three, four, five, six, like that, that little, I had a next door neighbor, his name was Scott, and he was the only kid in the neighborhood who was my age. So he was like my only friend option. And... Apparently, five-year-old Megan was a bossy little thing. I was such a bad friend to Scott. (laughs) But he he didn't have anyone else to go to, so (laughs) he was stuck with me. And I look back, and I treated him so terribly. I was always the one deciding what we would do. I was always bossing him around. And then, when I wasn't doing that, I was torturing him for my own entertainment. So my mom is a seamstress and I don't know if this is like a thing or just something my mom randomly had, but she had a sewing basket that was an armadillo shell, right? Armadillos, those like hard-shelled creatures with the long tails. You Texans might know what these are better than the rest of us. But um, So she had this sewing basket, and so it was the shell of an armadillo where the tail came up and went into the armadillo's mouth. Like really kind of a creepy thing, but as a kid, I thought it was like the coolest thing ever. I'd always like bring it in a show and tell at school. <laughs> But the neighbor, Scott, he was terrified of this armadillo basket. So if I like, if we were playing together and I started to find myself like in need of a little entertainment, I would just pull out that armadillo basket and I would chase him all over the house, like get it as close to his face as I possibly could. So from the very beginning, I've been bringing my own sin into my friendships. <laughs> I think I'm a little more sanctified by now, but... The sin nature is still alive and well in me, and it is in you too. So, you know, to recognize that sin is what comes easily and naturally to all of us. And so having a biblical understanding of forgiveness is actually super important. Because we won't be able to avoid sin. But having that understanding doesn't mean that forgiveness will be easy either to seek forgiveness or to extend forgiveness. Again, quoting from Tim Lane and Paul Tripp, they say forgiveness is one of the most poorly practiced activities in the Christian community, if it's practiced at all. And I read that and thought, I think they're right. I think that might be true. So we want to give this area thought. We want to think about it. So what do we do when we're the guilty party? First, if our friend is sharing with us the way that they feel like we sinned against them, this is a time when we just really need to be on guard against our flesh and the temptation to sin. As soon as that comes, our flesh is going to be right there, tempting us to become defensive, tempting us to blame shift. So we want to be on guard against that We want to be quick to listen to our friend, not to be internally mounting our defense as they're talking to us. We want to be thankful. Listen, even if you disagree with what your friend is saying, you can still listen thoughtfully and consider what they are sharing. And you can still be grateful because it takes a lot of courage for a friend to bring something like that to you. And it speaks of how she values your friendship, that she is willing to take a little bit of a risk and bring something to you that has hurt her. So no matter what's being shared, we can put that on, gratitude for them. And then, of course, we want to seek forgiveness, right? First from God, of course, and then from our friend. And when we do that, I think it's important that we name our sins specifically, we acknowledge what the wrong was that we did and the effect that our sin had on the other person. We don't want to downplay our sin or make up excuses, even if the other person contributed their own sin in some way. That part's not your responsibility. You can take responsibility for you. We can take responsibility for our own sinful responses. You know, So an example of this, of how we can seek forgiveness might be something like this, you know, I realized that the comment that I made was sarcastic and unkind. I was not being loving in my speech, and you know, I think my words probably cut you down and made you feel small. That was wrong, and I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me for that? Something like that versus, and I'm sorry that hurt your feelings. I didn't mean to, you know, like that one is really downplaying. It's not being specific. It's not taking ownership. It's not acknowledging the the effect that it had, and if anything, it's kind of like, well, sorry, you're such a sensitive person over there. All right, so we want to just be specific and own what we did, acknowledge it, and acknowledge the effect of it. Now, what about those times when we've been sinned against? If our friend is aware of their sin and seeks forgiveness, we need to be ready to forgive them. But this is hard. So, Remember the parable of the unforgiving servant we find in Matthew 18. Probably a lot of you are familiar with it. It's the story of the servant who owed the king like this huge, massive debt, like millions of dollars kind of thing. And there was no possible way he could pay it off. And so he went in and just begged the king, have a little more patience, have a little more patience, I can do it. And the king, realizing he wasn't actually going to be able to pay it off, forgives him all his debt. And no sooner had that servant left the king's presence, when what does he do? He goes out and sees someone else who owes him a much smaller sum of money, something that could actually be paid. And rather than extend the same kind of mercy he had just received, like he was just in the presence of the king, was just forgiven that huge debt, he comes out, sees someone who owes him, and rather than extend that same mercy and forgiveness of that debt, he starts yelling and strangling this other servant, saying, pay what you owe. And I was thinking about that parable, and it teaches us a number of things, but one of the things we learn from it is that extending forgiveness to someone who has sinned against us and hurt us in some way is hard because we have to absorb the effect of their sin, right? There's a real cost involved. And for myself, one of the reasons I can find forgiveness hard is that I don't want to absorb that cost. I want the person who did something wrong to absorb that cost. I'm tempted to say, pay what you owe. But that's not keeping in mind the massive debt that I have been forgiven. And the thing is, is that when we are unwilling to forgive, we are actually paying a greater cost because we are moving toward becoming a bitter and unloving person, and none of us wants that. Colossians 3, 12 to 13 says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And when I remember the debt of my own sin against God, a debt that I could never pay, that it has been completely canceled, when I remember that, I'm able to turn around and forgive a much smaller debt of a fellow sinner against me want to be able to extend forgiveness to our friends. There's also just the category of overlooking an offense. Right? And I feel like this, this is a category that we need to keep in front of us. You know, especially in our culture that looks to get offended over every little thing that someone says or does. You know, it's popular to get worked up over everything. So how do we know if we should overlook an offense or what falls into this category? Well, If our friend has sinned against us or hurt us in some way, but they don't realize that and haven't sought our forgiveness, then we really have two options, right? We can either bring it up with them, confront them, and sometimes we need to do that. Or we can overlook it. Those are really our only two options. And if we want to be gracious women, I think we need to have a pretty big category of things that we are able to overlook, You know, it's the small, petty sins of others. Let's just be quick to overlook those. Let's not hold on to those. Um, Sometimes it's not even things that we would put in the category of sin. It's just someone's weakness or character flaw. We need to be able to overlook the little offenses that come from those kinds of things. Proverbs 17.9 says, "'Whoever covers an offense seeks love.'" Or Proverbs 19:11: "Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Being able to overlook an offense is a glorious thing." And first Peter 4:8 says, "Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Let's be the kind of women who can cover over a multitude of sins in our friends. Too often, I think, when we think about either forgiving others or that category of overlooking an offense, we can have um, the idea that that's a once-and-done thing. What I have realized is that that's often not the case. Sometimes it is, and that's great, but more often, for me anyway, I can, can, okay, I'm going to overlook this, but then when I see that person, it's still the first thing I think of, that offense they caused. And... And I can be discouraged by that, but the reality is it, it's an ongoing thing that we have to keep working at. So you can have forgiven someone, you can be overlooking an offense, and just because you're still having to work at it doesn't mean you actually haven't done it. It's just sometimes we need to keep working at that. Again, Tripp and Lane, they say, forgiveness is both a past event and an ongoing process into the future. And I think this is especially true the deeper the hurt is, right? To not have that be the first thing that comes to mind when you see that person or think about that person, we have to actively work against that, right? So let's be women who are marked by a gracious spirit that is eager to forgive, who can overlook an offense, and who refuses to hold grudges. As we come to a close here, I want us to keep in view... Our Savior who perfectly embodied every one of these. Jesus perfectly embodied embodied empathy, humility, forgiveness. And we, before we're called to be a friend like that in hard times, we are the recipients of that kind of friendship in Christ. Right? Jesus, he always walks beside us in deep empathy. Whether or not our friends do, Jesus does. He weeps when we weep, he carries all of our sorrows, and he rejoices over every victory won, every blessing that he gives. Jesus perfectly humbled himself, he associated with the lowly, he didn't hang on to his own rights, He never clung to social status or reputation, right? We see that over and over again in the Gospels, him reaching out to the outcasts and the misfits without a concern for his reputation. And he certainly reached out to those outside of his tribe. In humility, he served his friends. And best of all, Jesus fully and freely forgives us of all of our sin. Not once does Jesus shall pay what you owe. Not once. Instead, he tells us, I paid it all. He has made a way for forgiveness and reconciliation, first so that we could be reconciled to God, but also so that we can be reconciled to one another and live at peace with one another and walk in friendship with one another. So Jesus both perfectly fulfills these and he empowers us to walk in his ways. We've been given the Holy Spirit so that we are now empowered to walk in empathy in humility and forgiveness in our friendships. We're not left to ourselves in that. We will still sin and fall short, but we're not left to walk in our own strength. We have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us. And as we press into the challenges in our friendships, let's remember that God is doing the very good work of making us more like Jesus, and he wants to deepen our joy through the gift of friendship. And those times when friendship just fails or disappoints us, or is just kind of requiring a lot of work, we can take comfort in our never-failing friend. Thomas Goodwin says this God has been your ancient friend. Even from everlasting, he has loved you ever since he loved himself. There is not a moment in which he has not loved us and had his thoughts upon us. Thank you. Mm